What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. All right, and we are live. For anyone who's listening at the moment, this is the Pro-Life Thinking Podcast. If, you, if you're a listener of our audio podcast, you're, this is probably a little bit new because you're not used to actually seeing us as we talk. It's new for us, too. This is actually a bit of an experiment to do a live stream of our podcast, essentially, so that anyone who wants to listen in can listen. We can take comment or questions if, if anyone happens to have a, a question, etc. And so just as something a little bit extra. And then after the after we're finished with the podcast, I'll take the audio from the video, uh, do a little bit of post-production on it, and then post it to the audio podcast. So this is, like I said, this is very experimental. This is my first time hosting one of these. And so hopefully with time, it'll get a lot smoother. But for now, there may be a little, uh, you know, a few bumps in the road here and there. And of course, uh, for the audio uh, podcast, you know, I'll be removing certain things which don't, which aren't really conducive to a podcast. Okay, so what I thought we would do. So today, uh, I I was actually asked by uh, someone named Chris Christensen to look over a debate that he did with Valerie Tarico. And, you know, Valerie is a name that's familiar to me. I've responded to uh, some of her articles on the LTI blog and probably my own personal blog, too. And so... Uh, that's what we're going to do a little bit later. But first, what I thought we'd do is we could actually respond to some listener comments that uh, we've received. So I'm, I'm bringing those up here real quick. Throughout our time, we've gotten some uh, some listener comments and some other things. And so I, I just thought uh, we'd go ahead and read some of those. The first thing is we have actually received a donation to uh, to our podcast, and we're, we're very much appreciative of that. I often make a, a financial appeal at the end of the podcast. That's purely to to help the podcast grow and and to help help me you know pay some bills and things like that. Uh, I do have uh, other sources of income too. I do other jobs, and so you know it's not my intention to try and make a living doing the podcast. But I thought that now would be actually be a good idea to kind of show where where some of the money that I that I do get from donations goes. The donation we did receive was over $200. That was a very, very gracious uh, donation. And so one one of the most steady 
things that that cost money for the podcast is hosting it. We we host it on blogtalkradio.com and that's that's what we use for our RSS feed. And so that has a monthly fee. And so when we receive donations, they often go towards that. I also thought I'd, I'd show a couple couple books that are in my collection. Uh, this one here is Human Capacities and Moral Status by Russell D. Silvestro, which yeah, Nathan uh, has read too. Uh, I believe you said you found a, a fairly inexpensive copy on Amazon, right? I think I I just I uh, some of the academic books, um, some of the academic for life defenses that are really expensive. If you just watch Amazon, um, eventually they sometimes come down in price, and you can find a copy for cheap. I think I got mine for thirty bucks, and usually it's about one hundred and ten. Um, same thing with Stephen A. Pierce's book, uh, "Persons, Moral Worth, and Embryos." Uh, that one's usually about one hundred and fifty dollars. I think I got it for about seventy. Yeah, I have that one too. Uh, I didn't pull it off my shelf though. But yeah, that that's a that's a great book to keep up with the academic literature uh, to see how pro-life thinkers, philosophers, and scientists respond yeah. to them. And the book by Russell D. Silvestro. For those not familiar, uh, Russell is a philosopher who actually teaches at Sacramento State University uh, here in California. And um, I guess I could show it off. I, I went to see him see him give a talk in, in Turlock, and I, I actually got his uh, his signature. When I took the book to him, because it is a it is a very expensive book, uh, he he told me that I'm actually the very first person who's ever had the book to have him sign it. So I, I have the dubious distinction of being of being his first autograph from that book. Um, we have had him on the past, uh, podcast before. He appeared on the podcast about two or three years ago. Yes, that's true. Uh, yeah, so definitely check that out too. We talked about uh, his book a bit, and then there's this one, "Dispelling the Myths of Abortion History" by Joseph Delapena. Another uh, pretty expensive text. De- uh, Joseph Delapena is a pro-choice uh, thinker, and so he's not pro-life. But he wrote a book dispelling four of the myths of abortion history. Um, you know, talking about things like Roe v. Wade and how they relied on bad history and bad jurisprudence to make that decision. And obviously, it's a decision he agrees with, but he still presents uh, the evidence for why it was it was wrongly decided and dispelling a bunch uh, some other myths too. That was actually recommended to me by Kelsey Hazard of secular pro-life and so you know these two books here uh, and the one that nathan mentioned and some others are are not cheap books and so when i get a book like that i don't usually pay for it um, out of the money i make uh, with my jobs what, what i usually did is i would sell articles and just kind of save the money that i got from selling the articles and use it towards those books those books are are really you know they're, they're not essential if you're if you only want to interact with pro-choice people and, and be like a sidewalk counselor or if you just want to interact with with the people in your you know in your sphere of influence those kinds of books really aren't books that you should buy, not only because they're expensive, but also because they're they're a lot more academic in nature. And you're you're likely not going to encounter anyone who has these kinds of concerns. But uh, for someone like me who does interact with the academic material and I've published in a, a peer-reviewed journal, things like that, uh, these kinds of books, uh, you know, if I receive donations, uh, they, they can go towards helping to, to pick up more materials like that. And so, you know, I just wanted to kind of show a little bit about where uh, donations would, would go to. So, yeah. And, you know, if there's enough, one of these days we might even be able to afford, you know, a studio where we can soundproof it and not have to worry about uh, dogs barking or, or people walking around whistling as uh, sometimes happens in uh, my podcast. What's that? Oh, we have fire trucks on my street. So sometimes I get from the podcast. Right. Yeah. So we try to keep, uh, you know, distractions like that to a minimum, but yeah, it's not always possible. So, you know, maybe one of these days we might even be able to afford a studio. So for those who have donated, I, we greatly appreciate it. And for those who haven't, uh, if you enjoy the content and you want to want to see more of it, please feel free to uh, to do so. I, I'm 
uh, affiliated with Life Training Institute. So you can go to the Pro Life uh, the Life Training Institute website, which is ProLifeTraining.com, and you can click on the donate button on the uh, on the top, or it's in the drop down menu on the top, and put you know just make sure to put my name so they know to, to put the donation into my account. So yeah, so we appreciate the donation we've received, and uh, even if you can't donate. You know that this podcast will always remain free. Uh, we'll, we'll ne- I, I have no plans to monetize any of our any of my YouTube accounts, so don't feel obligated. This content will always remain free. You know that doesn't mean we won't ever do maybe some exclusive content at some point, but uh, the main podcast will always remain free. My uh, YouTube channel will never be monetized, so don't worry if you can't afford to donate or if you're donating to to other worthy uh, worthy causes as well. So. That being said, we can switch gears a little bit and talk about some of the listener comments that we received. Now, um, this first one here was actually an email sent to me by a listener, and I, I did get her permission to to read her email on the podcast. And so she had some constructive criticism from me specifically. And so this comes from Marion Niels, and she says, Hi, Clinton. I enjoy listening to your podcast. have been listening on and off since March or so. Thank you very much for all you do for life. I just went back and listened to the one where you interviewed Greg Kokel in February. Do you mind if I give some gentle feedback? If you do, uh, if you do mind, just ignore me. And she gave a little smiley face. Uh, I think the one weakness of your podcast is how you respond to people you're talking to. If you haven't before, may I suggest you go back and listen to some of them and how you reply. I just think your replies could be a bit stronger, a bit more committed and varied. For example, thank you very much, Father Pavone. That is a great way of looking at it and gives us all some food for thought. Or, wow, I never thought of it that way. Or, Scott, you've really answered my question thoroughly. Sorry, this is the teacher in me. Another smiley face i hope you don't mind i just find your voice sort of trails off so if you could just come across a bit stronger slash in control slash leading then it would be perfect another idea would be to listen to some other podcasts and see how others answer for the rest it's great thank you so much for all your hard work and that was from mary and Niels. and i did uh, write back and respond to her a little bit uh so I, I thought that it would be beneficial to read that comment here to uh to number one to show that i i do absolutely take constructive criticism and so if you have any ideas for how we can make the show better or how I can improve my performance as a host. Um, And I'm sure Nathan feels the same way. Uh, If you have constructive criticism for us, how we can make this better, then by all means, uh, write write to us. You can write to me on the uh, Life Training Institute uh, email, which is clinton at prolifetraining.com. Or I did set up an email for the podcast itself. So you can write in at prolifethinking at gmail.com. So yeah, so uh, I, I took her advice. I wrote her back, uh, interacted with her a little bit, and, and I, you know, I, I totally understand where she's coming from. I, I've noticed that too. The, the thing is, when I after I do these interviews and even the regular podcasts, I tend to go back and do some post production on them. If there are long pauses, I, I cut them out, or if I feel like uh, my the, the way that I responded was a little. Not sure what the word is for it. Not really wishy-washy, but sort of like, I guess, non-committed, like just a, yeah, or okay, or something like that. I might cut it out and just uh, and just start the the next question from where it starts, which, which sounds a little bit more natural. So I have done some post-production on most of them. There are a few that I haven't gotten to yet, uh, just because I don't have the time to do them that quickly. Uh, the Greg Kokel podcast being one that I haven't yet hit with the, uh, with the post-production. So that is something that I do post interview uh and i've i've done with with a number of the interviews 
since the Greg Coca one. Like I did that with the Father Pavone. I did that with the John Elefante interview and some of the later ones. But uh, also a point taken about about trying to be more varied with with my responses too. So that's something that I am definitely taking to heart also. And so yeah, so I just want to to read these comments to show that we do actually that we do absolutely take uh, constructive criticism. And so by all means, if you have other suggestions or just want to tell us what you like about the podcast, uh, feel free to write us. Now on iTunes, we got another comment by Gabriella Bella 77, in which she starts it off saying, great content, love this podcast, great content, really appreciate the work you put into pro-life apologetics. My one issue is that there's a clicking noise that can be constantly heard in the background. It's very loud and distracting for the listener. I think it may be someone clicking a mouse or typing on a computer. It would be super helpful if you made sure the mic didn't pick up that noise. So Gabriella, uh, we I, I noticed your. Um, unfortunately, I didn't notice it when she she posted it two years ago. I hope she's still a listener and uh, it's gotten better. If not, uh, you know, hopefully she'll come back at some point. But if so, I actually just received your comment fairly recently because I actually. I just never got a notification or anything that you had posted that comment. So yeah, so I, we, we've taken that as well. And I'm not sure what the clicking noise would be. It could be typing on a computer because sometimes when, when we get a caller or something, uh, I'll often let Nathan know via Facebook Messenger that, you know, hey, I've got a caller. I've got to, you know, step aside for a moment so that I can uh, screen the caller and, and that sort of thing. So it might be typing because of that. And so if that has been distracting for the listeners, then uh, yeah, that's something that will be watching as well and so if if we need to type something we will you know turn the mic off and you know that that sort of thing so we we've got your comment and we'll be sure to watch that in the future and so we we appreciate uh the callers from listeners and so i i, I uh, was looking up some of the comments on itunes which is where gabriella bella 77 left a, a a note in a in a rating and just in the past week, we've received a lot of, uh, let's let's say, not so friendly contents. Oh, hey, Derek just got a comment from Derek Smith. Uh, hey, uh, glad you could join us. I know this guy. I work, I, he's a, a colleague at a Human Defense Initiative. Okay. Oh, cool, cool. Okay, so yeah, so we've received some not so nice uh, comments and and a lot of uh, a lot of one star reviews from pro choice people who are not very happy and obviously haven't listened to the podcast. One here says, "You are all going to hell." And this person writes, "Every I get pregnant in the future, I'm going to get an abortion and then tell everyone the reason is you." And she puts the like a smug face or something. Then have a great day. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is the first time uh, we've ever broadcasted with video. And so I can imagine that maybe I look like the kind of person that would cause a woman to, to get an abortion, uh, you know, but uh, I don't know what to say to that. You know, there's not a whole, I hate to sound it sound this way, but there's not a whole lot of intelligence behind a comment like that. I mean, it's really, you're going to go to seek out a pro-life podcast on iTunes and then make a comment like that instead of, you know, if we're wrong, go ahead and correct us. But uh, going and making snarky and trolling comments like that, I mean, to be honest, you're really, what are you doing with your time? Do you not have time devoted to anything more productive? Right, right. Uh, another one says, pro-choice, stop using God's name in vain, you blasphemous freaks. Okay, uh, thanks for your comment. There is one that says, not worth it. One of the worst podcasts I've listened to. There are plenty of better options out there. Okay, not we're, much I can say uh, to that. We're professional amateurs. That's right. I mean, yeah, I, I don't deny there are likely yeah. better podcasts out there. Uh, we're, we're not exactly 
professional yeah. podcasters, but uh, we do think that the, the content that we bring and the knowledge that we've that we've learned throughout the years is beneficial. And so even uh, even if we can approve on on the podcast broadcasting side of things, we still think that the information we have is is worth disseminating. And so if that person if we're not that person's cup of tea or if they're just trolling, no way to know. But you know, I mean, we we get uh, we get a fairly substantial amount of listeners, even from people who don't comment. So, obviously, we're not going to be everyone's cup of tea. And if that's the case, then I'm sorry, we're not for you. But hopefully, you'll be able to to find some good content elsewhere. And one um, of the things in our podcast is we try not to have myself and Clinton do so much of the presenting. We try to go out and find the smartest people who've written and done work on the issue, and try and get them out there so that listeners can be aware of their work. So that's why we have an interview with Chris Kayser coming up in the next few weeks about his new book that comes out on Wednesday, uh, Disputes and Bioethics. We try to go out and get the smart people and bring them here so that way we can um, we can present their ideas to a wider audience than they might normally get. Uh, like Russell D. Silvestro's book, uh, like Clinton mentioned, nobody else has actually signed his book yet. So <laughs> we try to go ahead and bring their ideas to it and say, hey, there are a lot of smart people doing work on this issue, and here's um, where you can go to find uh, find some of their material, even if you don't agree with it. And we believe the same thing about pro-choice, uh, pro-choice thinkers. I mean, we try to get pro-choice thinkers on the podcast. I haven't had so much success with that, but we do think there are pro-choice thinkers who do deserve to be looked at. Um, people that we greatly respect, like David Boonin, Michael Tooley, Kate Greasley, are all thinkers that we disagree with, but we try to get their material out there. So it's like, hey... There are people doing work on this issue that are really smart. You should check them out and then have a better understanding of the issue um, going forward. Yeah. Uh, so just a couple more co- more comments here, and then we can get to the uh, the, the meat of, of our broadcast today. Another person here says, you make me want to get an abortion with a smiley face. I can't wait to flush out those clumps of cells, exclamation point, exclamation point. Um, okay. Another really? person, <laughs> yeah, that's, what she, that's what she said. You know, I mean... Uh, you know, I mean, nothing really to say to that. If she is going to get an abortion, there's nothing I can do to stop her. Uh, clearly, nothing I say is going to change her mind. And so obviously what she needs is not philosophical argumentation. It's more like a, a counselor, probably. Another person here says foul odor came from speaker and he spelled odor, O-D-E-R. If that's the case, I would probably recommend a, a trip to Guitar Center because that's probably not uh, not natural. <laughs> Another person, absolutely disgusting. Wish I could give zero stars. Okay. And yeah, so I, I'm not going to read all, I'm not going to read all of these. Clearly we've been vote bombed by pro-choice activists. So, uh, you know, if you appreciate the content, if you wouldn't mind uh, going and, and rating our, our podcast and giving uh, some comments, I'm not going to ask you to rate us highly or give us uh, you know, a glowing recommendation if you, you know, if you don't like the podcast, but if you do like it, then, you know, I would ask that you try to help counteract some of these, these comments, which are clearly not from people who who've actually listened to the broadcast. And here's one. I wish your mom had aborted you. Well, thankfully, my thankfully my mom doesn't believe in killing her children. So, uh, yeah. Here's now, the, about the vote bombing is it's a lot of people the vote work with the algorithm on iTunes, and that's how it gets podcasts out there and advertised uh, for other people, so it shows up in their feeds. And so, the whole point of the vote bombing is to try and get our podcast not to show up in the feeds. Well, first, I mean, if you're listening to this and you're planning to do that, oh, I'm going to go vote bomb them so they don't show up in feeds. I mean, I really got to ask, what are you doing with your life? I mean. I'm sure there are much more important things you could be doing than going and vote bombing a podcast um, a podcast you disagree with. I mean, come on. 
Right. So yeah, so I'm not going to read all of these because um, <laughs> I just kind of read the, the, the funnier ones. Uh, you know, we're, we're not bothered by, by negative yeah. comments, especially if they haven't listened to uh, the podcast. So there are a couple in which they actually tried to make a case against the pro-life position. So uh, we may actually use that as inspiration for a future episode where we can respond to, to these. Um, because I, th- I think that even though they're not necessarily good arguments they're probably good for good to be addressed and so that people know why these arguments don't work okay i definitely wanted to at the very least read the constructive comments and and let people know that yes we do read we do read these we take them into account and we want to make the podcast better because the reason we do this podcast is to help you the listeners and so if there are ways in which we can make this podcast better by all means we want to hear about it and we'll we'll take those into account okay so now we'll go ahead and switch gears a little bit because this is the, the main purpose of what I wanted to do today on our on our broadcast, and that is to essentially review a debate between Chris Christensen and Valerie Tarico. And Chris Christensen is a Canadian professor that, that I got wind of, and he actually sent me the debate and asked me to give him some feedback on it. And I thought that it would actually be, be good to kind of review it on, on the, uh, the podcast. Now, the debate itself comes from... Uh, from Robert Stanley's podcast, and he calls it the Right to Reason podcast. So, um, you know, we'll, I'll provide the link for that in the show notes to the podcast. So I would, you know, I'd encourage you to go and, and give it a listen. Uh, that's where we're taking this audio from. And uh, it's about an hour long. And so we're not going to stream or to listen to the whole thing. I just want to listen to Valerie's parts and and interact with her arguments a bit. Uh, like I said, the, the whole podcast episode itself is an hour long and so the format was they both got five minute opening statements a five minute rebuttal a five minute second rebuttal and then they did a a little discussion for about 30 minutes now just to kind of start off with that's a really terrible format for a debate five minutes is not an appropriate amount of time to be able to present present a case especially on a topic as philosophically complex as the abortion issue if i were debating uh, i would not agree to a debate where we only got five minutes for opening comments i mean you really want your debate to be at least two hours you know maybe it's just that the format the right to reason does is just he has an hour long you know hour-long podcast episodes or something but you know that that's not really a very good format for a debate you really want to go at least two hours and at least have 20 minutes probably at the bare minimum for opening statements and then five or ten minutes for rebuttals so that's just a little bit of a little bit of, of uh, discussion on on debate formats for you uh, i do judge speech and debates and so when, when i see a bad format like this uh, <laughs> i kind of get a little triggered now again this is kind of an experiment for us this is my first time actually hosting on StreamYard, so I'm hoping everything will go smoothly. Uh, in the future, it'll definitely be a lot more streamlined, but for now, I'm just kind of uh, new at this. For this first portion, I'm going to go ahead and stop after each of Valerie's arguments, and then we can just comment on them real quick. So let me go ahead and summarize Chris's opening uh, opening statement real quick. So the, the proposition they're debating is, should abortion be made illegal? And so Chris is obviously arguing pro or yes, and Valerie is arguing con or uh, no. Chris's case essentially was in, in two stages. That Number one, the, the human fetus is a living human with value and rights. And number two, that, the, uh, that in any given abortion, the fetus's human rights are being violated. And so now to, to show that the fetus is a living human with value and rights, he argued that the parents are human and it's growing and, and something that, that is alive doesn't grow. 
so when we talk about whether or not abortion should remain legal, personhood shouldn't be our starting point, but being human should be our starting point. And so he, he talked about level of development and how the level of development is not what grounds our value. It's not that we're conscious uh, or anything like that. And then if uh, Valerie wants to make her case, she has to show that there's a moral difference between the fetus and someone who's older that we can't kill. Unwantedness is a commentary on the parents, not the child. So it's not whether or not the child is unwanted that makes abortion permissible. So it needs to be some other reason. So that's Chris's basic case. And again, he only really had five minutes to make his case. So uh, it's not the most robust case he could have offered, but you know, it, it's good for what it was. So that's his case. And now uh, Valerie Tirico is going to respond. So here is her opening case here. I believe that abortion care is a positive social and moral good. I'm pro-abortion because I think that morality is about the well-being of sentient beings, that it's about the lived experience of beings who can feel pleasure and pain, preference and intention, who at their most complex can live in relation to other beings, love and be loved and value their own experience. So that for me is the differentiator that Chris was asking about. The question is, what are they capable of wanting? What are they capable of feeling? And that morality is centered in what people call the platinum rule, one step beyond the golden rule, which is do unto others as they want you to do unto them. So I'm pro-abortion. Okay. So there she was actually offering what she considers to be the, the differentiator between a fetus and uh, someone who's older that we can't kill. Did you want to go ahead and comment on that first, Nathan? You know, I mean, right off the bat, um, I would actually say that's a really good argument she's making. Um, and I think, by the way, I also just love that idea of the platinum rule going beyond the golden rule to the platinum rule. I think that's that's awesome. But uh, when she says that, you know, uh, sentient beings, beings who can be loved, who can have dreams, I think there's a little bit of a confusion there when People say that, yeah, you know, I mean, actually, I agree with that. Um, the thing is, we're, as Maureen Conduct points out, is there's a large confusion between immediate capacities and our passive capacities. So, like, for example, I have the capacity to, say, um, to go out for a run. Um, I, My body is in a place where I can uh, successfully go out for a run. I'm my balance, my hand-eye and arm coordination is where it needs to be. Um, my health is in a place where it needs to be. So I have that capacity I could exercise right now. Like I could go out for a run right now and go out for a five-mile run. However, when I was a newborn, I didn't have the immediate capacity, but I had, uh, the, pa I had the capacity based on my human nature. So... Um, actually, I, I pardon, pardon me, I'm actually forgetting the exact term that Marine Condic uses. What she points out is that there is that, um, or she actually uses potential, and she says that there's active and passive potential. So I have that active potential, um, excuse me. So I have the capacity or the potential to go out and do that, even if I'm not able to exercise it at all times. So Valerie is, in a way, she's kind of confusing the two, and she's saying that, hey, you know, the fetus doesn't have, uh, it's not sentient right now. Okay, well, why isn't it sentient right now? Well, sentience, it comes along with age. Um, yeah, they have a capacity to love and be loved and dream, even though they're not able to exercise that capacity right now. But capacities come or go over the course of a lifetime. Like I just said, I can run five miles right now. I couldn't do that when I was a newborn. I couldn't do that when I was a toddler. Um, that capacity became more realized as I got older. Um, same thing like our ability to love and understand the concept of love. Love is an abstract concept. 
children lack the capacity to understand that. Uh, it's not until later in life, usually when a child becomes a teenager, that they begin to have the psychological ability to understand abstractions like love, like justice, or um, other abstract capacities. So our capacities for sentience are rooted in our human nature. They're not something that we gain accidentally, um, to use an Aristotelian term, is I might be able to, or let me put it this way, I might lose my capacity to run five miles, like say I become, get in a car accident, become paralyzed. Well, that becomes an accidental uh, characteristic of me is that now I'm paralyzed. It's not essential to my human nature. My human nature has been hindered in a way uh, based on something that has happened to me accidental, but it is not in any way, my root human nature has not been changed at all. Same thing with age. Uh, when I was five years old, I wasn't able to understand abstractions like justice and equal rights before the law. I can now because I've, I've aged and matured to the point where I can. So the capacities change throughout the course of a lifetime. And frankly, it's I would say it's not really fair to say, well, hey, the fetus doesn't have the immediate capacity to understand these things. Well, yeah, of course not. They don't need to. When you're in the womb, you know, having dreams and aspirations isn't really going to do you much good. You just you're living the way you need to at the time being. Right. Yeah. I mean, all of those are great points. Uh, the only thing I'd really add is that it, it's actually quite correct to say that uh, a fetus slash embryo is a sentient creature, yeah. uh, just like it's right to say that they are a rational creature. Uh, the only problem is they're, they're not, they haven't developed yet to the point where they can exercise that rationality or to where they can exercise that sentience. And of course, sentience, well, I think that's a, I think that's probably one of the stronger capacities to focus on if you're pro-choice, because as uh, Wayne Sumner points out, it actually addresses the pro-choice um, intuition extremely well that abortion is always, or, or mostly always permissible early on, but it gets harder to justify the later in pregnancy you go because the capacity to feel pain develops as, as the pregnancy does. Yeah. So uh, I think that's one of the stronger points to focus on if you're pro-choice. But that being said, uh, it, it is the case that fetuses are sentient and that they're rational creatures, uh, but they have to develop to the point where they are able to exhibit that rationality and sentience. On top of that, we can we can fully agree with Valerie that yes, we we ought to respect sentient creatures and the fact that they're sentient. The fact that you know I don't think my dog is a person, but I'm not going to torture her for fun because she's still a sentient creature. She can feel pain, and that would be cruel of me to inflict needless pain, you know, especially on someone who. You, can't really fight back. So uh, so I, I agree wholeheartedly with her conception about sentience being important in the moral equation. But the thing is, that only shows that it's a sufficient condition for value, not a necessary one. So yeah, we ought not mistreat things which are sentient, but how does that then show that we should that we do have the permi permissibility to mistreat something that's not sentient or that even though it can't feel pain, how does that show that we're not harming something that can't feel pain by killing it? So yeah, so it's really just a sufficient condition, not a necessary one. So I'll go ahead and continue Valerie's case here. And in the interest of time, uh, I'm not going to stop after every point she makes because she actually makes about eight different arguments for why she's pro-choice. So I'm going to let the rest of her time play out and then we can talk about these uh, at the end. And then so, just, uh, I mean, obviously she's in the same spot as Chris was. Um, she's not going to be able to develop a whole lot of her points. So it does kind of right. work in her favor. So just in the interest of fairness, um, we're, she's, she's probably got better arguments um, 
that she could make if she had more time. Um, but, you know, because you have that time constraint, it's going to be a little bit hard. Yeah, and it's actually worth pointing out, too, that she's actually very cordial and charitable in this debate, which actually kind of surprised me because I'm used to reading her articles and I've responded to some, and she's not usually very charitable to pro-life people in her articles. So uh, I was actually you know, very surprised and very impressed with, with how charitable and uh, cordial she was being during this debate. So that's, that's definitely something to, to mention as well. But yeah, considering that they only had five minutes to make their case, that's really not very much time at all. So here comes the rest of uh, Valerie's opening uh, arguments. Now she's going to defend her case for why she supports abortion. Like I'm pro-knee replacement and pro-chemotherapy and pro-cataract surgery, as I've said in the past. Um, as the last protection against ill-conceived childbearing when all else fails, abortion is part of a set of tools that help people, women, children, and men to flourish. So I'm going to make an affirmative argument for universal access to abortion care. First, I'm pro-abortion because well-timed pregnancies give children a healthier start in life. We now have ample evidence that babies do best when parents are able to nest in advance of, of, of becoming pregnant, when they're able to space their pregnancies and get both prenatal and preconception care. Wanted babies are more likely to get their toes kissed, to be welcomed into families that are financially and emotionally ready to receive them. I'm pro-abortion because intentional childbearing helps couples, families, and communities to get out of poverty. Decades of research in countries ranging from the U.S. to Bangladesh show that reproductive policy is economic policy, and it's no coincidence that the American middle class rose along with the ability of couples to plan their families starting at the beginning of the last century. I'm pro-abortion because contraceptives are imperfect, and people are too. In the real world, one in 11 women relying on the pill gets pregnant each year. For a couple relying on condoms, that is one in six. Young and poor women, those whose lives are least predictable and most vulnerable to being thrown off course, are those who have the most difficulty taking pills consistently. I'm pro-abortion because being able to delay and limit childbearing is fundamental to human empowerment. A couple that lacks the means to manage their fertility lack the means to manage their life trajectory. I'm pro-abortion because the future is always in motion and we have the power and responsibility to shape it. Any small change means that a different child comes into the world. Which nights your mother had headaches, the sexual position of your parents when they conceived you, whether or not your mother rolled over in bed afterwards. Every day, men and women make small choices and potential people wink into and out of existence. We can never know what the alternate futureness might have been, but some things we can know or predict, at least at the level of probability, and I think this knowledge provides a basis for responsibility and for guiding wise reproductive decisions. I'm pro-abortion because I take parenthood seriously. Parenthood is a lot of work and doing it well takes 20 year, dedicated years of focus, attention, patience, persistence, social support, mental health, money, and a whole lot more. This is the biggest, most life transforming thing most of us will ever do. And the idea that a woman should simply go with it when they find themselves pregnant after a one night stand or a rape or a broken condom completely trivializes parenthood from my perspective. I'm pro-abortion because Reproduction is a highly imperfect process. Genetic recombination is a complicated progression with flaws and false starts at every step along the way. And humans, an estimated 60 to 80% of fertilized eggs self-destruct before becoming babies. But the weeding out process is also highly imperfect. Sometimes perfectly viable combinations boot themselves out and sometimes horrible defects slip through. Lastly, I'm pro-abortion because I believe in mercy, grace, compassion, and the power of fresh starts. Okay. So, sorry, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. I was just going to say, as, as you can see, uh, she said a bit of a mouthful there. 
she gave eight separate reasons for why she's she's pro in fact she called herself pro-abortion she didn't call herself pro-choice so valerie apparently takes the pro-abortion moniker and and adopts it to her position and so she gave eight separate reasons for it and you know i wanted to save time a little bit instead of just stopping and responding to each one in turn but i also wanted to show what she was doing here the technique she's using because to to give a little bit more of advice regarding regarding debate procedure uh what she did here is what's known as a gish gallop in which you you only have so much time to be able to defend your own arguments and uh, and then respond to your opponent's arguments that uh there there is a debate technique where you can just throw out so many arguments that your debate opponent can't possibly hope to respond to all of them. And then you could always uh, declare victory if there are certain arguments which your opponent can't address just because of time. And considering that you only had five-minute opening statements and five-minute rebuttals, throwing out eight arguments for why she's pro-abortion is really a bit much because there's no way that Chris is going to be able to defend his position and respond to all eight of these points in turn. Now, uh, a couple of points that uh, came up for me, I just want to discuss them briefly. Um, she refuted what has actually become a very common pro-choice uh, argument on social media is that, you know, if you were really, and actually I've had this happen when I'm doing campus research, uh, outreach with Justice for All or Center for Bioethical Reform, where I've had people say, they go, well, you know, if you were really so pro-life and you really cared about um, stopping abortion so much, why aren't you, you know, out here giving out condoms or talking about contraceptive or comprehensive sexual education? Well, she actually refuted that argument in one of the eight arguments that she laid out. And she said, she goes, you know, contraceptive is uh, imperfect. I have a textbook sitting on my shelf right now, Abortion Care by Samuel Rollins. It's, by, it's a book written by a group of uh, British abortionists. And they actually refute the argument about contraception. And they said, you know, just because we got contraception, we're still going to need abortion because contraception is imperfect. So when people say, oh, well, you know, um, if you really want to limit abortion, don't restrict it, just increase the access to contraception. Well, even in the book that I have, Abortion Care, they point out that that's just a myth, that abortion is going to be needed as long as contraception is available. And that raises a, a bit of an objection that I would have to Valerie's point here. I could agree with every single one of the points she made and still disagree with her about abortion and say, well, you know, that's actually a really good argument, not for abortion, but for making wiser choices regarding sexuality. Um, you know, I can agree with every single one of her points. You know, the future is always changing. Um, unintended pregnancy causes a lot of socioeconomic problems. And I'm going, you know, why is that an argument for abortion and not an argument for, say, making better decisions regarding sex? Why isn't that a better argument against the hookup culture and saying, hey, you know, if you hook up, you're probably going to put yourself into this uh, position where you're now pregnant uh, unintentionally um, or uh, spacing out pregnancies. Uh, there are pro-life groups who actually advocate for what's called natural family planning, where they say, hey, you know, let's learn to track an ovulation cycle and then only get pregnant when we're intending to by only having unprotected intercourse during that time. So her argument doesn't necessarily justify abortion and could justify really anything, including wiser decisions regarding human sexuality. Um, and so, and then lastly, I would say she's assuming the unborn aren't human, which is where the line is drawn between pro-choice and pro-life advocates is pro-life advocates hold that it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Pro-choice advocates generally agree. Then we say, well, abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. And that's where the line gets drawn. Pro-choice advocates will bring up a variety of different reasons for why even the unborn are not human beings, or if they are, we have no duty to value them. 
well, that's where the argument needs to be made. I mean, well, yeah, you know, I can agree with everything Valerie just said and say, well, abortion's still wrong and we should still restrict abortion. Um, we should just have people making better decisions regarding sexuality, regarding their life choices, probably not be having sex with every person who comes along while they're in college. That might be a good start to reducing those problems that she mentioned. Um, and then say it's, you know, we view the unborn as members of the human family, and that's why we oppose abortion. It's not because we want women to get pregnant just for um, out of wedlock all the time. We actually don't. If we want people to make wiser decisions regarding sexuality, because the unborn are human beings, not in spite of that. Those are, you know, those are all really, really good points. Uh, yeah, each one of these, as you were saying, is is really more of an argument for making wiser decisions regarding sex. Because, yeah, we can agree that that well-timed pregnancies give children a healthier start in life, that intentional childbearing can, you know, help women get out of poverty, those kinds of things. Uh, you know, I mean, that second point, though, about poverty there are a lot of women in poverty who have kids, you know, because sometimes, you know, there are more important things than how much money you make. And so having a, you know, a child's love can often, it can kind of make uh, poverty more bearable if, if there's yeah. having children can get expensive, but not having children isn't going to get you out of poverty. So you need something else that's going to change, not necessarily not having kids. So, you know, it's, it's a lot more complicated than just saying you need intentional childbearing to get you out of poverty. You know, that's not going to get you out of poverty. You, you need other uh, resources to get out of poverty. And so all of these things, like you were mentioning, is an argument for being wiser about your sexual practices, not about having an abortion, because now we're talking about actually killing a human being. And, and again, uh, yeah, like you were saying also, uh, all of these kind of assume that the unborn are not human beings, but she hasn't really made a case for it. She said that she cares about the suffering of sentient creatures, but she hasn't actually made a case for why sentience is value giving. And she hasn't explained why it's necessary and not simply sufficient that you be sentient in order to have value. So she hasn't actually made her case. She's just given an assertion. And this is something that, that Chris will point out in his first rebuttal. He reiterates that the, that embryos and fetuses are living human persons with value and rights. And then he talks about how how her view on sentience is an opinion, not an established fact, like being human is. I think what he's trying to say there is that placing it in sentience is kind of an arbitrary line uh, rather than placing it in, in the humanity of the unborn, which is something that's objective and knowable. And so he also makes the point that not being that you're not being aware of being harmed does not mean that you can't be harmed. Uh, he talks about how, you know, he, talk, he uses Frank Beckwith's uh, example, in fact, about how you can condition slaves to not have interests or to not desire their own freedom. And yet we would still say that if you've conditioned a slave not to desire freedom, he's still being harmed by being a slave and not given that freedom. And of course, he talks about if, if you steal his inheritance and he's not aware of it, you've still harmed him, which I think are all good points. And so, yeah, so he actually, he, he tried to address her points as well as he could, but he did kind of mention that they all fail because we're talking about an actual human being here, which you can't kill to justify for these reasons. So that's kind of his rebuttal in a nutshell. And so now here, uh, this is Valerie's second rebuttal coming up here. Yeah, and so now, uh, so what's that? Uh, one other point did occur to me when she made, she made a point about uh, she supports abortion because it is related to human flourishing. Uh, our friend Chris Kayser, he has an argument about that, and he says, he goes, you know, one of the reasons why it is wrong to intentionally kill any human being uh, without justification is because it permanently precludes and undermines that human being's flourishing. So he points out is that, you know, if you were to kill me right now, um, I mean, you would 
permanently preclude me from ever experiencing love again. My the love of my family, I would never be able to get married and go on and have children. But I would also, I would lose so much in being killed. And he points out he's actually adopting an argument from philosopher Don Marquis about the when you kill somebody, you take away a future of potential good things happening to them. And he says, he goes, you know, well, killing somebody takes away all their flourishing right now. I mean, we can't engage in uh, intellectual conversations. Well, if we were killed as children, we would have been denied a lifetime of flourishing. Well, that means that if we were killed in the womb, it would have taken, it would still have taken away that lifetime of flourishing. So that's one reason why abortion is wrong. So Valerie's position on human flourishing as a justification for abortion actually undermines itself because it works as a justification for protecting the unborn. If you care about human flourishing, you should care about protecting the unborn from abortion because killing them through abortion would deny any and all human flourishing they would ever experience. Right. Okay, uh, so now here comes Valerie's second rebuttal period. And now I'm not going to wait to the end to stop it. Uh, if you want to comment on something that you hear, just tell me to stop and I'll, I'll stop the broadcast. Okay. Okay. Um, so, so Chris's rebuttal brings me back to that very first paragraph. And I went on from there to lay out why we have a morally affirmative um, responsibility to to provide universal access to abortion care because of all of the ways that it enhances human flourishing. But he's right, I think, that the question of whether the um, fertilized egg or blastocyst or embryo or fetus um, is a person and deserves rights um, ultimately kind of is where we need to make a differentiation. And I said that I believe that morality is about the lived experience of sentient beings who can feel pleasure and pain. I think if you look at the history of the philosophy of morality, and if you look at the structure of morality within the world's great wisdom traditions and within our secular um, societies as well, what you find is that there is a strong concordance between morality, our moral obligations to other beings and to other people that is based on what they are capable of experiencing. So why do we have a moral responsibility to, for example, not torture chickens, but yet we feel comfortable taking their lives? We feel comfortable taking their lives in part because we know they can't value their own lives. We're not comfortable with the morality of torturing chickens because we have some good evidence that they are capable of feeling pain or and that and kind of morality suffering. Okay, I'm going to stop here real quick just to comment on this, that uh, this is a really simplistic understanding of the history of, of ethics and ethical philosophy. Uh, because, for example, uh, Christian ethics has always condemned abortion in no uncertain terms. And Christian ethics has always condemned infanticide, but uh, most ethical systems have not condemned infanticide. In fact, they have supported infanticide like the ancient Greeks, and we even have philosophers today which are arguing for the permissibility of infanticide. So, And I, I believe Valerie does not support infanticide, or at least I haven't heard her say that she does. And so she would probably say that the infant is sufficiently sentient and that it wouldn't be permissible to to kill an infant. Uh, that doesn't really come up in this debate, but uh, you know, I, I wish it kind of went a little bit because I, I would have liked to hear her thoughts on that. But yeah, this is just a really simplistic understanding of ethics. And what she's talking about regarding the chicken would actually be consistent with Christian ethics too, because as far as I know, you know, Christian ethicists like Thomas Aquinas, which of course has has its roots in Aristotelian metaphysics, would agree that chickens are sentient and that they can feel pain, and that we shouldn't just torture 
chickens for fun, but that it's permissible to kill them for food. That all of that is consistent with the with the Christian ethical system, and the Christian ethical system throughout history has condemned abortion. So I just think this is a really uh, simplistic understanding, and she she never really explains what she means by it either. She just kind of takes it for granted. I think. I mean, again, I think we need to give a little bit of grace is, I mean, she does only have five minutes and that's, that is a lot to unpack in five minutes. Uh, the argument you're making. Well, well, sure. But she could have at least given some examples, like, you know, certain ethical systems like Immanuel Kant, if it's true, I don't right. know if that would have been part of his ethical system or something, but she could have at least given a couple of examples because, you know, obviously there, you know, there are counterexamples to it. So, you know, it's, it's just a, it's just kind of a simplistic argument all around and has some clear counterexamples to it. And then regarding her point, she uh, mentions about lived experience and uh, says that she goes, well, you know, I love, I care about the lived experience of um, sentient beings. The irony is that that would mean that if we're going to go with lived experience as a basis for not killing somebody, that would mean it would be more wrong to kill me at 25 years old than it would be to kill me at two years old. I have more lived experience in the past 23 years than I did when I was two years old. And I believe it's, I believe it's Patrick Lee that points it out, and he says that when we focus on the lived experience part of it, we we end up making that mistake, and we say, "Hey, you know, if we're going to go with lived experience, that means it's more wrong to kill an adult than to kill a child." But that doesn't really that uh, that seems very counterintuitive to say, you know, uh, lived experience is the basis for not killing somebody, and. Frankly, I mean, and it could be one reason why killing somebody is wrong. And as Chris Kaiser points out, there could be multiple reasons why killing somebody is wrong. He, he gives an example. He says, you know, a very a racist uh, fiction of a black woman um, could be wrong for several reasons. It's racist, it's sexist, and it is insulting to her humanity itself. But he says that each one of those could be wrong. It's the same thing with killing. You know, killing me would uh, preclude me from ever enjoying anything in the future. But that's one reason why it's wrong. You also just shouldn't kill me regardless. It's wrong to intentionally kill human beings. And so lived experience can be one reason why it's wrong to kill somebody, but it, it's not, doesn't mean it's the only reason. Okay. So I'm going to go ahead and continue, continue on with her uh, rebuttal here. Suffering again versus well-being is at the very heart of all of our moral philosophies and, and our religious traditions. And then of course, there's some other, um, kinds of language or rationale that gets wrapped around those moral intuitions and moral traditions and moral um, frameworks. Chris is basically making the argument that human DNA is the basis for making someone a living human being. So I, I kind of think of that as wordplay. Of course, the fertilized egg is living. Of course, it's human. Nobody is debating that whatsoever. The question is whether that then merits the kind of protection that we afford to sentient beings. And if you ask the question that way, I think what we it, it becomes then consequential to recognize that 60 plus percent of fertilized eggs um, fail to become babies, that that nature itself, if you will, God is the is the largest abortionist, and that it is structured that way for the very purpose of fostering well-being, the health and well-being of people in the world. And as a, and so, just like any other aspect of medical care, we look at where nature's 
nature's processes don't optimize well-being, and then we seek to utilize our intellect and our capabilities and our sense of responsibility and our compassion for each other to enhance the things that nature leaves undone, the limitations on our immune system, for example, or our ability of the body's ability to fight off cancer. So, you know, as soon as you say that personhood is about human DNA, I think that you end up with um, something problematic because if you ha- then if you ask why should it be about human DNA, why should we care about non-sentient embryonic life in human beings but not in other species, what you come back to is then a set of explanations that have to do with the fact uh, with how humans are different than other species. And the way that we are different than other species has to do with our greater capacity for personhood, our capacity to think, to care about our own well-being, to kind of envision in our future, to relate to each other, and to be kind of conscious to a greater degree of the world around us. So I, I kind of I think that the human DNA argument as a kind of foundation for saying that the fetal um, kind of the fetus has human rights fails at, from the very get-go. And then I think from there, then people start backing into the question of do we have here a potential person? And again, there's a whole set of of arguments that would kind of lay out why potential people do not under any circumstance virtually have the same rights as actual people. Okay. So that was her second rebuttal. And so she brought up a couple more points that are worth talking about that. Number one, she brought up the miscarriage uh, objection and how she quote, God is the greatest abortionist end quote. Uh, And then she talked about how Chris's argument is that human DNA is what grounds our value as human beings. And so just to touch on those real quick, miscarriage is something that Chris responds to as well. And his response is good. You know, essentially that miscarriage is is where the embryo or fetus dies of natural causes. And so the fact that someone dies of natural causes doesn't then justify us intentionally killing someone because obviously infants die of SIDS, uh, sudden infant death syndrome, that doesn't then justify us killing infants or even adults die of cancer or even just die of natural causes. So that doesn't mean that we're then justified in intentionally killing them. But also the numbers that people talk about regarding miscarriage and how many embryos are miscarried is almost certainly exaggerated. Uh, Valerie talks about how 60% are miscarried. Well, the problem with that is number one, it's not really possible to determine just how many are actually miscarried. I think the uh, the research they rely on happens to has to do with embryos conceived in the lab. And so obviously they're not even looking at, at the situation of, of embryos in the womb that are uh, spontaneously miscarried. But uh, there are also other non-human entities that can result from the fusion of the sperm and the egg, such as a hydatidiform mole, a choriocarcinoma, or other things. This is talked about by certain pro-life people like uh, uh, Bernard Nathanson talked about it in his book, Aborting America. Uh, Maureen Kondik talks about it in several places in her articles and in her books. So there are other non-human entities that can be conceived by the sperm and egg fusion. So if those things uh, fail to implant and are fleshed out in a woman's period uh, or other things like that, it's because it was never a human being to begin with. And so we shouldn't count those as human beings that are, that are miscarried. So it's really just not possible to know exactly how many are miscarried. And even then, the number is almost certainly exaggerated. And then just to address the human DNA point real quick, this is something that Valerie keeps harping on. And I, I don't think Chris 
addressed it as well as I think he could have. Because, yeah, you know, they only have the five minutes during their argumentation sessions. But then there was a 30 minute time of discussion afterward. And I think that this was kind of one of the places where he was a little weaker on in this debate. And so it's not the human DNA per se which we would say grounds value. I mean, you know, all humans have human DNA, but obviously non-human entities like the hydatidiform mole or cancer have human DNA and they're not valuable. So it's not the human DNA per se, it's what the human a- as a whole is. And uh, this is something that Chris addressed too, except that he relied on the theological argument that all humans are made in God's image. And that's a good argument. Uh, if, if that's why you believe humans are uniquely valuable, great. That That's a, that's a, perfectly fine explanation but if you're talking to someone like valerie they're not going to be convinced by the religious argument because they're not religious themselves so uh we need to talk a bit about why humans are more important than other other uh, types of animals now valerie says it's because of our greater capacity for personhood but that's that's not really an explanation because number one how much of a capacity is necessary to have value she never addresses that you know certain philosophers like peter singer will say that other types of animals do have a capacity for personhood like chimpanzees and dolphins so it's not necessarily one's capacity for personhood that matters it's one's nature and and in the case of human beings we have a rational nature and since one's nature is retained over time then if if humans if adult humans are valuable and should not be killed because of whatever reason well the fact that the embryo or fetus has that same nature uh matters morally and so you're you're killing something uh if you're killing something as an embryo that would be the same individual as they are as an adult because they have the same nature in both places and so if it's wrong to kill the adult version of the human it's wrong to kill the embryo version of it too and and if you're talking about it's okay to kill the embryos because they're not sentient or they're not self-aware etc then you're essentially saying it's the level of development that matters because that embryo will become rational will become sentient but they need time to develop We'll go ahead and move on then. Uh, and once again, if if uh, if there's anything that you'd like to stop and talk about, uh, just let me know, and I'll I'll stop the uh, stop the video, and and you can comment. Okay, so essentially, uh, Chris gets the rebuttal next uh, after after Valerie's prior rebuttal period, and so he talks about uh, Greg Kokel's story about uh, you know washing dishes and your kid comes up and asks if you can kill this your answer to that question of can i kill this depends on what that thing is if it's a you know if it's a bug yeah go ahead have fun go to town if it's your brother well we'll probably recommend counseling obviously that would not be okay so whether you can kill something depends on what it is and in this case being human is what matters so he talks about how valerie's position leads to inequality uh, because you know different people can have different uh, different levels of, of sentience, and so we need to keep it focused on what the unborn is, and so uh, so that you know he's doing a great job there of keeping the conversation focused on what the unborn is, the nature of the unborn individual. That's where, as pro life uh, advocates, we need to keep the conversation focused. And so here is Valerie's uh, final rebuttal period. Thank you, Chris, and thank you, Robert. So uh, your question of what are the unborn is some is the one that I, I think in the end you fall back to this question of if it's human day, DNA, then somehow it's it gets these special rights. 
as compared to other species. But as soon as we ask that question of why should humans have special rights, unless you're falling back on some religious thinking about souls, et cetera, that center our species, which of course we kind of, we are all very prone to center ourselves. You, what, as soon as you start asking about why we should have these special rights for humans, what you hear about is how species are different, how humans have qualities or features like agency and sentience and language that not all species have. So, so what this kind of question of why, what are the unborn? They are certainly human DNA. The the kind of idea that a fertilized egg is life is kind of irrefutable. So. I, I think that to some degree, people who make this argument are arguing about something that is actually irrelevant to the broad realm of morality and to this question specifically. Let me illustrate it. Well, I, I once had a conversation with um, my cu my cousin, who is a right wing Catholic. This was many years ago, and I. Um, and in frustration, asked him, I said, imagine that somebody had a beaker with 5 million fertilized eggs in it, and they smashed it on the ground. Is that a crime on the scale of the Holocaust? And his thinking forced him to say yes, at which point I said, we don't have a basis for a conversation here because your sense of morality is so alien to mine and to how I perceive the moral frame frameworks within the world's great religions and within our legal system that there's no basis for conversation. It was morally repugnant to me to the point that I stopped the conversation. Can I interrupt here? Yeah, I, I was going to stop there too. Uh, so go ahead and, and say what you're going to say and then I'll, I'll uh, comment afterward. You know, something else Chris Kayser points out is he says that, you know, there are something like the Holocaust had added evil to it. Actually, it's not Chris Kayser. Frank Beckwith makes this point is that something like the Holocaust had added evil with it. There was an awareness of having your dignity stripped as a human being um, for people who died in the Holocaust. Uh, there was an added level of torture. There was an added level of psychological torment that went with it, an um, added level of cultural torment, um, having your entire ethnic heritage attacked by the government. Um, and actually by your neighbors, uh, many Germans uh, were supportive of uh, attacks on Jewish people before the Holocaust even began. Now, her claim, though, she still, what makes it wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings? And she keeps pointing to our capacities for sentience, our capacities for, uh, our basically as a psychological accounting of why killing is wrong. Now, regarding the, the comparison, yeah, maybe... It's not comparable to the Holocaust, but what about killing somebody who's on an operating table under the effect of anesthesia? Would that be comparable to a serial killer brutally and slowly dismembering a victim? Well, no, obviously they're not comparable because there is that added level of torture, psychological torment, uh, and pain that's added to it. A person who dies on an operating table because of medical malpractice doesn't have all that because they're not aware of what's being done to them. However, we would still agree that they were denied justice somehow. They were wronged in a way. Um, frankly, they had their trust uh, betrayed by the surgeon who was operating on them. Uh, another example, the Equal Rights Institute just covered this on a recent podcast where they said that, you know, the case of a doctor who sexually abuses a patient that he's operating on um, or who's yeah. under anesthesia, even if the patient is unaware of what's being done to her and what happened to her, maybe she wakes up, doesn't have any idea that she was uh, abused. She was still wronged in a way, even if she wasn't sentient at the time to the point where she was aware of what was being done to her. 
And so, yeah, that might not be the same thing as being brutally tortured by a serial killer, but both are still wrong. They might not be wrong on the same level, but they are still morally wrong. And so we would say that killing an embryo is still wrong because you have, say, undermined their flourishing, as uh, Chris Kayser's flourishing, like ours argument would point out, or as Don Marcos points out, if you've denied them their future as a human being that all other human beings are entitled to. So there is that. And actually, I think an interesting thought experiment comes out from Robert George and Christopher Tollefson, where they point out during Hurricane Katrina, the New Orleans Police Department uh, rescued a number of embryos from a infertility clinic that had been flooded by when Lake Pontchartrain broke its levees and flooded downtown New Orleans. They pointed out that those embryos were saved, but under Valerie's argument, they actually wasted valuable time and resources, even though many of those embryos were saved and later implanted and children were born, were those embryos at one point. So Valerie's argument would actually say those children, that saving those children, um, in fact, they, they give the example of a little boy named Noah, who was one of those embryos who was saved in the, the flooded clinic. Valerie's argument would imply that Noah, that saving Noah back then would have been a waste of time and resources. It could have been better to come elsewhere. Well, I think her argument bumps up against the same problem. And she says that, you know, there's no basis for a conversation here. Well, actually, I think there is. The root humanity is the basis for how we treat human beings, even though they are different than us. Um, that's been the basis for it for all time. Uh, all Any sort of social justice advocate has appealed to root humanity at the core of their argument for why we should treat, say, the disabled different uh, we should protect people who are disabled. We should protect people who are of a different culture or background than us, people who are younger than us. Um, it's the root humanity. It's not the capacities we're immediately able to exercise. And I think that's where she's getting confused. The first time I listened to this debate, I, I heard her talk about about a Petri dish and that started to, <laughs> I started to perk my ears up because I thought, I thought I was about to hear the uh, burning, burning IVF clinic uh, <laughs> thought experiment again, but no, she actually, she actually prevented, presented a slightly different thought experiment here. And yeah, I mean, your, your response to it is, you know, really good. Uh, yeah. That's, it was kind of my thought too. One could possibly make the case that if we're look if we're talking about just as far as number of human life is concerned, just on that question, yeah, breaking the petri dish could be seen as morally equivalent. But as you're talking about, and as you were quoting from Frank Beckwith, there were a number of things that went on in the Holocaust. They, they were tortured, and uh, a, a lot of women were given forced abortions, and all of these really, really horrible things going on during the Holocaust. And so we can say that the Holocaust was worse than destroying a Petri dish, not just because of the acts that were committed, but the people that these were committed on were sentient and were rational so that they could understand uh, what was happening to them. They could understand the pain they were going through. So all of these things make it much, much worse than what would happen if you were to break a Petri dish. That's not to say breaking the Petri dish is moral, but it is to say that there are certain things that went on during the Holocaust that that made it uh, an atrocity. And it wasn't just the loss of life. It was all of the things that went on, you know, medical malpractice and, and performing dangerous experiments on people and all these kinds of things. So, yeah. So I wish uh, Valerie's cousin would have had the benefit of reading Frank Beckwith or, uh, <laughs> or someone who, who talked about that. Okay. So we'll go ahead and continue on with, uh, with Valerie's second rebuttal period. And I, I think that's what we're up against here. This, this idea that 
abortion is discrimination is something that a lot of the religious right is playing with at this point. They're trying to figure out how to capitalize on human rights law and human rights traditions and our sense of morality around discrimination. But if you dig deeper, what you find is that those legal traditions and moral traditions are based on the idea that people are people persons are capable of having experiences and of having desires and of having intentions and preferences and that our obligation to them comes out of that. I would actually, actually there that I want to jump on. I would like to know what she means by capable. Um, immediately capable or capable based on her human nature. Those can be two different things and there's become a confusion between those two words. So like I said earlier, I'm capable of going on a five mile run now because I'm in good physical shape for doing so. I was, when I was two years old, yeah, I was technically capable. I mean, I was developing according to the way a normal human being develops, but I wasn't immediately capable back then. So I think we need to differentiate between the two. And I think, unfortunately, she's being a bit of a weasel with the word capable. Um, and also she keeps jumping to human DNA and I, I'm not entirely sure the argument that Chris made, I would have to listen to uh, his points. But she keeps saying, she keeps bringing up and saying, well, you're only saying human DNA. Maybe Chris said that, but that's not the basis of our argument. Our basis of our argument is humanity itself. A, DNA is a representation of our humanity, but it's not what makes our humanity. Well, it's related to it. It's what helps make our humanity, but it's not the core of our humanity. And when she keeps bringing up capacities, she, it, like I said, she's confused between the capacities I can exercise now or the capacities I can exercise because I have a human nature. And if it's capacities because of I have a human nature, guess what? I had those capacities. I had a human nature when I was an unborn child, mm -hmm. even if I couldn't exercise them back then. You know, obviously it's just kind of uh, kind of more of the same here from Valerie. And uh, this is something cool that I can do, as you see right down here. Uh, I can bring up comments on the yeah. on the stream. Derek is saying, uh, this reminds me of the hypothetical that I believe Klusendorf proposed about you having an uncle with a large inheritance that he left in his will, but you have no idea he, ex he existed or expected this money. Have you been wrong regardless of your desires for his money? Uh, and he clarifies, sorry, someone steals the money from you, but you didn't know you had it coming. Have you been wronged? And yeah, that's a really good counterexample to this idea about, about sentience that, you know, we can all agree it's wrong to torture a sentient creature, but just because it's wrong to torture a sentient creature, it doesn't follow then that it's not wrong to, uh, to act in certain ways towards things which are not sentient, especially something that's not sentient now, but will be sentient in the future. This is why we would say sentience could be seen as, as a sufficient condition for, for human value, but not a necessary condition. Something else, I also, I like how she kind of just threw, she said, well, it's the religious right that's trying to capitalize on discrimination arguments. Well, I mean, we have liberal pro-life friends who use the same arguments that we do, that abortion is a violation of human rights. And so, and, and a lot of, it, it bothers me a bit that a lot of pro-choice thinkers are so linear in their thinking saying that, oh, it's only the religious right that opposes it. And they seem to, for, they don't actually take the time to understand that the pro-life movement is actually very ideologically diverse. I mean, we're at the March for Life. We marched with an atheist group um, with our friends with Secular Pro-Life and uh, uh, many of whom are liberals. And so it's not wedded to any side of the political aisle. Both sides of the political aisle actually have people who come together and agree that this issue is a form of unjust discrimination. So it's, it, frankly, that frustrated me a little bit. I'm going, come on, really? Do you not know how diverse the pro-life movement actually is? 
Another thing uh, Derek says here is something that stops pro-choice advocates in their tracks is the story of little Anna Rodriguez in New York who had her arm removed in utero when her mother stopped in the middle yeah. of an abortion. I actually had not heard of that. I have. Do you want to expound on that a little bit, Nathan? Yeah, so Scott Klusendorf actually in his last debate with Nadine Strassen, I want to say it was in 2017, um, he actually brought this up during their cross-examination period where uh, it was the last question of the debate, and he said, he goes, you know, because Nadine Strassen kept appealing to, well, the human being in Euro doesn't have any rights, they don't have any rights, and so he brought this up and said, you know, this little girl, she lost her arm in a botched abortion, she survived, but she lost her arm. Has she been wronged in a way? And Dr. Strassen actually had no, she said, um, she kind of waffled on it and said, well, I, I would need to actually look at the case, and Dr. Lusendorf actually handed her the case document and said, it's right there. Yeah. And so it really it brings up and it shows how flawed this sort of thinking is, is that oh well the human being in utero and it's more of an argument against uh the the sovereign zone view of bodily autonomy and to quote uh, to paraphrase trent horn's term is that oh you know the human being in utero is completely subject to their mother's uh bodily autonomy and that really brings it up and says you know that that just doesn't make any sense but it's when you actually start looking at how barbaric late-term abortion can be the head, the barbarity of late-term abortion really shows bodily autonomy is not a very good justification. It's not a very moral position. Yeah. So it's, uh, and Derek is bringing it up. He says, he goes, you know, it's interesting to see people bite the bullet and say no one was harmed or wronged regardless of an apparent missing arm. And I've had people say that. I've used the thalidomide example that we use, that Justice for All teaches, Equal Rights Institute teaches. Um, or I've used another example that actually Dennis Prager has used. It said, you know, suppose a child in utero was... There was a genetic test done we were able to find out the child was going to be born homosexual and the parents say well they don't want to have a gay or lesbian child um would it be acceptable for the parents to abort that child and most people stop at that point and say well no it wouldn't be um or warren hearn actually gives an example in his book abortion practice of a woman who came to him uh who was pregnant with a boy and she wanted a girl so she wanted an abortion she wanted a sex selective abortion and warren hearn actually was very disturbed by this well, this is the guy who wrote the first textbook on how to perform abortions in the United States, and he's right. disturbed by this. And, you know, Jay Budachewski makes a, a good observation. He says, you know, these are the things that we can't not know. We really do know deep down these things are wrong, even if we don't want to admit it. And so the example that Derek brought up is a good example of that. But that's more related to a, an extreme bodily autonomy view that, oh, well, I have the sovereign zone, so I can say what happens in and to anything within my body. And... When you start bringing up these thought experiments, it's, you know, the sovereign zone is really not a very good justification for abortion. It's actually a very barbaric view if you um, take it far enough. Well, yeah, like I said, there's another 30-minute discussion between Chris and, and Valerie. We won't go into it here, but if you do want to want to watch the debate in full, I'll put the debate in the show notes. And it's you know, it's worth watching. You know, I mean, these, these kinds of questions are worth discussing and debating. So uh, I think we just lost Clinton. Uh, well, Clinton's going to put the debate in the show notes, and that would be um, that way our audience can go ahead and listen uh, closer to the debate itself. Um, yeah, Clinton lost his capacity to uh, participate in the discussions, so therefore he's no longer a podcast host. We're probably going to go ahead and wrap things up right now. Um, Clinton actually just dropped off, so I'll go ahead and wrap things up for us, uh, unless he jumps back on. So this will probably be the format that we do our podcasting in from now. Um, 
we're really liking StreamYard. This will probably be how we have guests on. Like we mentioned, uh, coming in the next few weeks, we will have Chris Kayser on to talk about his forthcoming book, uh, Disputes and Bioethics, where he's talking about abortion and also other issues such as transhumanism, postnatal or antinatalism, the view that, you know, I have a right to not be conceived. Um, it's a relatively new uh, idea that's making the rounds in bioethics literature and on the street. Oh, I like how Derek just said it's now the Nathan Apodaca podcast. Um, and so we'll be discussing that with uh, Dr. Kayser pretty soon. We're also looking at having other uh, appearances from others. Uh, Mark Newman to talk about his new book, uh, Contenders, uh, getting the church more active in uh, the pro-life movement. So until next time, I'm Nathan Apodaca and then Clinton Wilcox, you know, uh, we'll sign off from there. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.